This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. I'm Christian Blood, KTSA News, and now it is time for the hmm. Jack Riccardi Show. Yeah, there's no getting around it. Um, <laughs> like it or not. <laughs> seems to happen this time every day. Uh, happy National Pizza Day. Ah, uh, yeah. I don't know. If, are you a pizza guy? Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah, okay. Um, and I do want to ask you a serious question, because I, I, I'm just getting all confused about the balloon story, and you're very smart about this stuff. So are we now to believe that there have been lots of balloons? No. No. So, okay, because first it was like, oh, my gosh, a Chinese balloon. Then it was, hey, there were balloons before uh, Biden. And then we were hearing, oh, they have, they've got an extensive program of balloons. They've been doing this around the world. And I, now, where are we at on that? And I heard you say there was a, a closed-door briefing about the balloons mm-hmm. Well, it is closed-door, but, yeah. Jack, you're kind of answering your own question a couple days ago. Am I? <laughs> Remember when you said the sky was dark with Chinese balloons a few well, days ago? Well, here's what I am thinking. Yeah, right. I mean, like, maybe cloudy days are just balloon days. But <laughs> I, I, I seriously thought, well, there have been a lot of weird, like, UFO anecdotes floating around like maybe some of those are the balloons right well here's what i spent a little bit of time and this is such a small sample size but i got to think about this over the weekend because i wasn't alive for the cuban missile crisis for example but my dad was okay he was in high school it was the most frightening time of his whole life that week or a few days or whatever it was so what changed how do we go from that kind of preparedness and what was that 1962 or one okay 62 but yet we can have foreign balloons so what changed so i'm not privy to be in these closed door meetings but i can say this don't you think that mm. if there were all these balloons flying around North America, Canada, whatever, in today's day and age of smartphones, yeah. everybody's got a camera, it would be right. everywhere. So, and yet right, it's because not. if everybody saw this one, why didn't everybody and his uncle see the other ones? Yep. But on the other hand, then I come back to I know our government knows way more about this than they are letting on. No, oh, guaranteed. And if they For didn't sure. think we could handle Roswell, they probably don't think we can handle. Uh, you know, Balloon Fest 23, so. <laughs> balloon Fest. Um, so anyway, that's okay. I'm, I'm, you've, you've set my mind at ease a little bit. You're, you're saying basically I haven't really missed anything. I, I thought no. maybe I had missed a day somewhere in there. Nope. Um, so we, we, we talked about the State of the Union last night, or, or we talked about it yesterday. Uh, of course, it happened uh, Tuesday night. Um, and now we have the ratings um, for the State of the Union, according to the, the Nielsen people. Uh, 27 million people tuned in. That sounds like a lot, but that's the second smallest audience for a State of the Union speech. Um, that's down uh, 28% from last year. Uh, for comparison, uh, Trump's second State of the Union speech, this was Biden's second, 
Trump's second State of the Union speech got uh, 48 million uh, viewers, and this one got 27 million. Now, help me out. I mean, 81 million votes for Joe Biden, right? Most votes any presidential candidate in American history has ever received uh, blew away all the expectations of all the political scientists. Um, so if, if that many people voted for him, and um, this is all the stuff we want. We talked about this the other day, right? Everything they're doing is what we want. This is what we want. This is what we need. Then, then where, where were the viewers? And get this, the most stunning number isn't even the total number of viewers, but the three quarters of the viewers of the State of the Union speech uh, were over the age of 55, and only 5% were under the age of 35. And maybe that's good news, because if you saw the speech, uh, Biden was careening and slurring and gaslighting his way through it. Or if you're one of these hand-wringing, pearl-clutching uh, Republicans, maybe that's good, because that means not many people saw Marjorie Taylor Greene, uh, you know, doing her uh, her thing. I was thinking about Sarah Huckabee's, or Sarah Huckabee Sanders, what are we calling her? Sarah Sanders? Okay. We can't use her initials because that's shh, and that's not good. Sarah Sanders' observation that basically the dividing line between uh, in, in our society now is between crazy and normal. Uh, the more I think about that, it's it's very simple, and it might some might say simplistic, um, but the more I think about that, the more I think that kind of sums it all up. Um, Joe Biden ran or the people in the Trojan horse that is Joe Biden ran, on the idea that we were going to return to normal, that the Trump years were crazy years, that the country was tired of, of Trump's antics. And, um, and Joe Biden, if anybody would know, Joe Biden would know how you were supposed to govern and the proper conduct of, of uh, the two-party system, and we were going to get back to some kind of normal and part of that was going to be this this sort of massive build back better i i know when you hear me say this you're shaking your head like jack i never believed that you didn't believe that i i know i know you and i didn't believe it but i'm 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 pointing it out because obviously there were people who believed it and now it's fair to say that did not happen we are in fact in much more unfamiliar territory uh, than we were before Biden. So what about Trump? A guy named Ben Barty wrote a column today. It's tr- it's time for Trump to pass the torch. It's time for Trump to pass the torch, he writes. In part, let me read a little of it. When Trump careened onto the political stage out of nowhere in 2015, smashed the GOP establishment in the mouth, dominated, went on in the general to upset arguably the cringiest D.C. swamp creature of all time. In a historic political upset of David versus Goliath proportions, it was all golden, he writes. It was a truly, truly savory moment in American political history. A new era had dawned, ushered in by the orange man. But he writes, for all the catharsis, Trump wasn't any hero of mine then, and he's not now. What he was to my eye, Barty writes, was pure ego with an unparalleled marketing flair, impossible to ignore and confounding to his opponents. Normal politicians, although predominantly psychopathic and dead inside, I do like that, are nonetheless trained to emote human feelings as part of their occupational duties. I feel your pain. Remember that? 
They are conditioned to shame their opponents and to respond rhetorically to shaming in kind. Trump received no such training because he was never the same breed as the professional managerial class of the Gavin Newsom or Lindsey Graham uh, variety, writes Barty. This is a piece called It's Time for Trump to Pass the Torch. Buddy writes, Trump is not a hero. His inflated ego and stubbornness make for a double-edged sword. He's not saving anything or anyone but himself, and he has no loyalty. He's an adult child. In the movie Tombstone, Wyatt Earp asks Doc Holliday on his deathbed, what makes a man like Ringo, the villain of the movie, the way he is? Holiday responds, a man like Ringo has got a great big hole right in the middle of him. He can never kill enough or steal enough or inflict enough pain to fill it. And he says that's Trump. Call it liberal propaganda, whatever. I call it a plausible and repeatedly documented pattern of behavior to satisfy psychological shortcomings. I don't care that he cheats at golf, but it speaks to a desperate need for validation. So he says... For all these reasons and many more, I cannot honestly call Trump a leader or hero, much as I might like to, on account of who his enemies are, because they are also mine. And if you remember the Sarah Sanders speech, when she talks about being 40 years old and the youngest governor in the country and uh, Joe Biden is the oldest president in history, she says, in so many words, it's time for the young people. It's time to turn to younger leadership. So when she's saying that about Biden... Is she also saying it about Donald Trump, for whom she worked? Is this a call, whether it's Governor Sanders or this guy, is this a time, is this a call for, as you know, JFK said, passing the torch to a new generation? I've thought a lot about that, because I'm between these two age groups. I'm not in the age group that Sarah Sanders is in. And I'm not in the age group that Trump and Biden and Sanders and Clinton and so forth are. Bernie Sanders. And then I was thinking about, well, when Kennedy said that, he was a World War II veteran. He was speaking to the greatest generation of which he was a part. So when they said, give us a chance, it's our turn, these were people that had done something. Or at least this was a generation that had done something. Now, I'm not saying there aren't 40-year-olds who have done something today. There's plenty of them. There's tons of them. But can you say that about that generation today, like you could say it about the generation uh, that gave us Kennedy? What do you think? 210-599-5555. Does the 40-year-old today have the case for, hey, Hand it over to us. It's our turn. We know what to do that the 40-year-old in 1960 had. What do you think about that? And is it time for Trump to pass the torch and Biden to pass the torch and Hillary to pass the torch and Bernie to pass the torch and, you know, uh, Focahontas to, to, to pass the torch and so forth and so on? What would you say? 210 599 Fifty-five, fifty-five. Have they have they shown us? Oh yeah, this is a group of people we need to you know elevate. Here's another guy freaking out about the uh, congressional response to Biden's speech. John Podoritz says, "Call me a rhino if you like, but I'm a conservative. I've always been one. I've never been." He writes today, "I've never been more embarrassed 
to be associated with the Republican Party than in the middle of the State of the Union when House members started openly heckling the President of the United States, screaming liar and bull bleep. And those barbaric House members fell right into Biden's trap. This is a guy that claims to be a conservative saying Biden engineered this. He's so smart. He contrived this moment. Rather than shaking their heads, they behaved goonishly. That's exactly what Biden wanted them to do. Really? That's what Biden wanted them to do? Because I'm watching, and Biden looked like the train went off the tracks and rolled down the embankment. When he got interrupted, he he barely pulled it together. Or was that an act, too, John Podoritz? You know, I will agree that reasonable people can disagree about the spectacle of Tuesday night. But I have to tell you, if you are making the argument that it would be better to sit there and take it, you you might be able to intellectually build that argument. And, and for whoever John Podoritz is writing, perhaps that's very appealing. I just know that there's a lot of people who listen to politicians talk. Okay, maybe it's on the news, maybe it's on the radio, maybe it's uh, when they're streaming in their earbuds while they, uh, you know, do stuff around the house or take a walk. And when regular people listen to politicians, bull bleep and liar, in other words, I can't say on the radio, but you know which ones I mean, come out of your mouth and come into your head all the time. So if... If for some reason these Republican members of Congress should have acted differently, you can make that argument. But this is how we feel about our supposed betters. They're full of it. They've been full of it for a long time. And who knows, maybe, just maybe, the few people that were actually tuned in Tuesday night were relieved to know they weren't the only ones that thought this was a bunch of bull. Maybe it's time to find out that, uh, hey, it is. Uh, you can join the show uh, and talk about what we're talking about. 210-599-5555 right now. Yeah, I mean, I know that in sports there's a thing called alternacasts where if you don't want to just watch the game, you can watch people watching the game. And I know there's a thing. I'm not a gamer, but I know with like in gaming there's a there's a huge thing where people watch these YouTube channels and it's watching people play games. So you're not playing the game. You're watching somebody playing a game. And maybe that was the effect. I, I don't think it was the intention or the design, but maybe that was the effect of, of the Republican revulsion um, to the speech. Because it is bull. And I don't think... You can tell me all day long how you wish they'd been quiet and polite and sat on their hands and crossed their legs. But at the end of the day, that's just an exercise. That's just showing that you can do that. I don't think you should get on live national television, all the channels, and talk that way to us. And I think if you do, you deserve to hear from us. You want to do that at a Democratic Party meeting or a rally or your campaign event, fine, because everybody there drank the Kool-Aid. We know that. We know that's how it works. That's how it works with the Republicans, too. When the Republicans gather, they can tell their their fables and their 
you know, they're, they're bedtime stories too. But that was a bunch of bull. The, you couldn't even fact check the State of the Union speech. There weren't enough facts to string together between the falsehoods. 210-599-5555. Remember James Carville, the Democratic Party guy? He was very upset. He says that the Republicans are white trash. That's what was on display during the State of the Union. He was on one of those uh, MSNBC shows. And he says, I have a Ph.D. in white trashology. And those people were white trash. Here's James Carville, cut number four. Was that a bad moment for Republicans? Well, uh, you know, I told people I have a clue a Ph.D. in white trashology. And you saw real white trash on display. Hmm. And let me say something about Congressman Marjorie Taylor Greene. She dresses like white trash. She really hmm. needs a fashion consultant. Can I recommend oh. George Santos? He, he could do a good job of, of... Hold on, hold on, hold on. So... Let me just break this down for you. James Carville, who looks like he crawled out from under the bridge, is critiquing the fashion of a woman who serves in Congress and then making a gay slur about George Santos, like he should teach her how to dress. Okay, continue, please, Dr. White Trash. Can I recommend George Santos? He, he could do a good job of... of- Mm. Dressing up where she doesn't announce yeah. her white Those trash. Those gay guys have her, a good fashion. Well, I'll tell you, James. And I thought he had a great night last night. And the, mm. it's just, it's the, the, the level of white trashdom in the Republican Party is, mm. is just staggering. I hold on, hold some, on. I gotta, I gotta say, I gotta say. Didn't James Carville give us President Bubba, as Rush Limbaugh used to call him? It isn't, is, I mean, I mean, what, what white trash? The Clintons? Okay, I mean, I, I you clearly know your subject matter. But um, I, I love when the elites get on television and insult people like you and me because only good things can come from that. It's when they're telling you everything's fine that you might fall back asleep again. But by all means, keep insulting people, keep coming after people for their faith, Keep coming after people for their guns. Keep keep making proclamations about how their children really belong to you. I'm all for it. That's why when they say stuff like that, just in case you missed it, we play a little of it on this show, just so you will know this is what they think of you. This is how they're talking about you. And, you know, the part of the speech that was really the most insulting, as I thought about it over the course of the last 24 hours, was the part about how well the economy is doing. Because you can talk about other stuff. You can talk about the balloon, and we don't know. And you can talk about uh, Ukraine, and we don't know. And you, but but like the you can't lie to people about what they're living through. And when a guy who has so many houses he doesn't know where the documents are is telling you, "Hey, it's great. The price of everything's coming down," you know that's not true. We're all sitting around trying to figure out where our money went. And I know there are people in this audience that have the Dave Ramsey thing, and they've got envelopes and cash and budgets, and you still can't figure it out. Now, he bragged about the job creation. And we know that there were reportedly 517,000 new jobs added in January. 
But as they pointed out at the Mises Institute, most of the jobs being created are part-time jobs, which means there's somebody's second job, which means we're doing so well, we now have to get a second job. Oh, that's great. I can't wait for my third job. And when people have to work second jobs, that has ripple effects in other areas of their life. That's harder on a marriage. That's harder on being a parent. That's maybe not so healthy. I'm not saying if you want to hustle and you want to have a, a, a gig or a second, I'm not saying don't. I'm not, I'm not putting it down. But what I'm saying is these numbers suggest that a lot of people are having to take a second or third job. That's nothing to be proud of. That's nothing to say is, is progress. You know what progress would be? You do your job. You bring home enough money to sit at the kitchen table and have dinner with your family at a reasonable time of day. That's progress. And dad's not going back out in a couple of hours. Or mom doesn't have to leave right after dinner and be gone all night at her other job. That would be progress. Then I looked at this. I don't want to get too in the weeds here, but um, one of the leading indicators of a recession is consumer debt delinquency. Now, that means credit card debt uh, carrying a balance for 30 days or more. It fell during COVID because you were locked in and you were getting stimulus payments, but it's skyrocketing back upward. Capital One, Discovery, American Express, all reporting that credit card delinquency is on the rise. It's, it's the, the graph lines are going almost straight up. And that means that people are having to buy things with the credit card that a couple of years ago they were buying with a debit card or with cash. Now that doesn't touch a guy like Joe Biden or for that matter, any of the Republican leaders, but that's what's really going on. And that's why it's bull bleep when you talk to us this way. And that's why it should be called that. I think Super Bowl weekend. Are you going to watch the Super Bowl? Are you interested in Super Bowl 50? What is this? 57, I think. Yeah, 57. I remember when people used to say, well, I don't, I don't really watch for the game. I watch for the ads, but you don't really hear anybody say that anymore because now the ads, such as they are, run, you know, the, the, the sort of high creative ads that they would wait and save just for during the Super Bowl. Now they run them before and they run them after. And I, I don't, I don't hear that. I don't hear that enthusiasm. That used to be a big day after, you know, conversational topic. Um, so it, and it, I guess the halftime show, some people, but it, it, it does really just kind of come down to, um, the game. And the funny thing about the Super Bowl that I've noticed over the years, and, and I, I'll, I'll see how it turns out with our poll question tonight. I predict that the vast majority of you will say no, not going to watch it. And a lot of people say that and mean that on a day like today. But when it gets to be Sunday night, a lot of those people will be watching it because what we always forget is the sort of, well, what else is there and everybody's doing it and the people at my house are watching it or wherever I'm going, it's going to be on. So it's one of those things, It's it, it reminds me of when, when Howard Stern was on the radio. Everybody would say, oh, he's, he's awful. I never listened to him. He had huge ratings. 
but everyone was adamant. I never listened to him. He's awful. Not sure how they knew he was awful because they never listened to him. But anyway, so I think I'm, I'm not. I'm not saying you're lying, but a lot of people that say they won't watch the Super Bowl will be hanging around with the Super Bowl. Uh, but that's our question on the JR poll, 210-599-5555. So yesterday we had the, uh, the Facebook post from Steve Brown, the former KSAT meteorologist. He was defending his pal, former KSAT sports director Greg Simmons, who got a DUI and then resigned. He was saying that the reason Greg Simmons' career didn't survive the DUI is because women are in management positions and they're uh, authoritarian and mean, and when men ran things, they were more lenient or tolerant. This is what Steve Brown said. And um, (laughs) he's saying other stuff now. Uh, He's saying he never saw Simmons drunk, but he was aware that he drank and that he hired a personal driver many, many times when he would go to bars. You know, it might be better to just stop talking about it, Steve Brown. I'm not saying this to be disrespectful. I like Steve Brown on the, on the, on television. I've never met him, but I liked him on television. But boy, if you're a friend of his, you're not helping here. You're doing the opposite. I would, I would kind of, you're digging the hole deeper. And, um, you know, when somebody is fighting a DUI and you're like, yeah, I was aware that he drank, not helpful. He says he also knows about a valuable person with a DWI arrest that was treated differently in the past. I, I said yesterday, and I, I stand by this, it's not just television or radio. In any organization, if, if, the, if the employee is, is valuable or valued, if they're putting a lot of money in the books or for other maybe less obvious reasons, they are valued, um, companies will sit down with a person in a situation like this after they've done something like this and say, you know, get right, pull yourself together, take, take time, we have resources, and then we want you back. And when you flush somebody after 42 years, I think it was 42, 43, that looks to me like you were going to do that anyway. And this became your reason or pretext for doing it. I, I, and I am pure, purely speculating, but that's just from what I've seen. 210-599-5555 on KTSA, Jack Riccardi. So a radio friend of mine posted on Facebook. You, I don't know if you've heard this. There's this big thing with Madonna. She was at the Grammys. She looked... Um, she didn't look good. She looked rough. Her face was very stretched and swollen, like maybe she's had a lot of work done or a lot of stuff pumped in. Um, she just looked kind of severe. I, I remember as a young guy, I had a crush on Madonna. The Madonna of the early and mid eighties was gorgeous, you know? And so she comes out to make this presentation at the Grammys. I didn't see it. I've only seen the photographs of her, and people are are riding her pretty hard. And she is saying it's misogyny and it's ageism. Okay? So anyway. So this radio guy puts the picture up of Madonna looking like a, you know, Game of Thrones character. And next to her, he puts a picture of Fran Drescher, 
the actress who was in The Nanny. Remember The Nanny? Okay. And he says, Fran Drescher and Madonna are the same age. And both women have been long known for their beauty and their fashion and their other talents. This is how each of them looked at the Grammys. Madonna blames misogyny and ageism. I haven't heard any jokes about Fran. See, I think when when people start talking this way, when people start bringing up, oh, men are such misogynists, and men, how dare men look at me and judge me? Isn't it usually the case that the woman saying that has gone out of her way to stand out, to be noticed? It's like these women that post videos of them working out. They're they're at, they're at the gym, and they're working out in their Lululemon, you know, bodysuit, and they're like, "I cannot believe." They've it's always like they've got the the phone, so they're shooting like over their shoulder. Like, I cannot believe this guy keeps looking at me. You really can't believe that the guy is looking at you. I'm not defending boorish behavior. I'm not. I'm not saying that men should be pigs. Sometimes men are pigs. I am a man. I can say that. But it just seems like a lot of times, and I think this is what went on with Madonna, quite honestly. I I think she contrived to be the center of attention that she would not have been if she had just looked like Madonna. So she, she went to extremes. She made herself look really just, um, bizarre. And, uh, we're talking about her. And no one's talking about Fran Drescher because she looked lovely and she was dressed for an award show and she's just looks fantastic, radiant. But that doesn't make the news. That doesn't make the headlines, right? I mean, I'm not saying there's no such thing as misogyny. I'm not saying there's no such thing as ageism. Like, there's a lot of it. But you can't have it both ways. If you are screaming for attention and then you get attention that is no one else's fault um this isn't a political disagreement when you when you look people in the eye when you come into their living room and you lie to them about how well they're doing uh they're not going to disagree they're going to be furious they're going to hate it and i'm sure there were far worse things being said and done in front of television sets, then we're done by any member of Congress in that chamber. 210-599-5555. Um, so we're talking about that, the Steve Brown thing. Um, is I don't know. I just I think for Greg Simmons' sake, maybe Steve ought to get off Facebook for a while. Uh, the Madonna thing, um, getting a lot of emails on this. Um, Nick says it's not ageism. It's what the hell she's done to her face. Fran Drescher just looks normal. Uh, Eric says one had a much better plastic surgeon. <laughs> Suzette says, I'm glad you brought this up. There are other women Madonna's age and older who haven't felt the need to have such drastic alterations. In Madonna's case, ageism can't be blamed. Here's another one from Alex. It's probably more that Fran Drescher still looks recognizable as Fran Drescher. I saw Madonna on a late night talk show a few weeks ago, and I wouldn't have believed it was her. Until I heard her speak, yeah, it's it's what she's done to herself. It's not what other people are doing. Uh, speaking of the Grammys, um, 
Dylan Mulvaney, uh, TikTok influencer, uh, made his, her, their appearance on the uh, red carpet. Um, this is um, the transgender advisor to President Joe Biden. Remember, we played that video. So Dylan went to the Grammys and E! News covered it. I just, I, I need to play a little of this to make a point. Uh, cut number three. I was about to have like a total fangirl moment. TikToker Dylan Mulvaney makes her red carpet debut after undergoing facial feminization surgery. The social media star looked stunning at the Grammy Awards February 5th in a red Wait a minute, stop. By- stop. Facial feminization surgery? Is that what we're calling it now? By the way, maybe Madonna should have that because she doesn't look like a woman anymore. So I'm just, I didn't know that was, I didn't know, I've never heard that term. She did not look stunning. She looked like a guy in a gown, which I guess is stunning. Okay, continue. The social media star looked stunning at the Grammy Awards February 5th in a red halter neck gown by Christian Siriano. She wore her hair up in a sleek do for the event held at Los Angeles's Crypto.com Arena. Ahead of the big night, Dylan teased she was bringing a date to the ceremony and asked fans to guess who. Turns out it was a fellow influencer. Reveal in three, two, one. Hey, baby. Hi, babe. Excited for the Grammy? Let's go on a date Let's- for the Grammy! Inside the bash, Chris helped his date with some snacks because you gotta protect the look, right? There you go. It's a good one. Okay. He's feeding her. She's got the gloves uh, on. Ready for like another? Yep. Okay. I love a wife chose. <laughs> I could do this all the time. What are you doing tomorrow? <laughs> when the night was over, Dylan gave fans a post Grammys update. My favorite performance from the night was Unholy. The Kim win was iconic. I'm so happy for her. Um, and I did see Sam Smith at one point, and I was about to have like a total fangirl moment. And I walked up to Sam, and Sam turns around and goes, "Babe, get over here!" All right, and I that's was enough. So I, I don't, I don't want to be mean, but I just need to tell you how this strikes me. And I'm interested in your pushback or your disagreement, but I feel like guys like this hate women. You have to hate women to put yourself forward this way, to expect everyone to go along with this. I'm a live and let live guy. Do what you want to do, wear what you want to wear, be what you want to be. But but this insistence that everybody buy in and and this aping of womanhood, I think is only possible if you hate women to begin with. I I have the feeling if you peel the layers back, on a lot of these people, you would find out that somewhere in the past, they've either had their feelings hurt, they've had a traumatic experience, they had a mean mommy, they had a mean teacher, they had some, some woman in their life turn the, you know, flip the switch, and, and, and they just they hate women. Now, it's not for me to speak for women. I'm not here to say how women ought to feel about Dylan Mulvaney or any of these people. I, I'm, I'm interested to know how you feel, but it's not for me to say how you feel. You, you, you can say that. You can tell me and tell all of us. But, but that's just how it looks to me. Like, if you are doing this coarse, crude imitation of a woman, I don't see that as a tribute to women. 
I don't see that as as an homage to women. I, that that looks to me like you hate them, and you have decided, you know what? It it doesn't take much. I just have to throw this on and throw that on and smear a little makeup on, and I'm obviously I'm a guy. But hey, now I'm a woman, and that's what you're reduced to as women. In their vision, you're not a thing in and of yourself. You're just the the accoutrements, and anyone can put them on. I, I guess uh, Justice Jackson wasn't lying when she said she couldn't define a woman, because apparently women are not a thing. Women are just the culmination of a few cosmetic items and a couple of fashion items, and you've got a woman. There's nothing in, in there. It's just the accessories. Uh, you guys were great in the playoffs. Uh, you went seven and five. Don went eight and four. Mm-hmm. Uh, here we are now with uh, Philly and Kansas City. And uh, what's the what's the final verdict? I've got to go. Kansas City thirty one. Philadelphia twenty two. Okay. And are you one of those people that's saying um, Philly's better team, but Kansas City has Mahomes? Because that's the that's sort of the 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 generic. Eric argument I hear a lot of like Philly's more complete, but you just can't bet against Mahomes. I don't know if Philly's more complete. I mean, I'm looking at the injury report. Both teams are are pretty healthy, but the the, the Eagles have three linemen who are a bit dinged up, and Lane Johnson's one of them. Mm. Uh, that's a groin, and that's not that's not great. I can see why some people would say the Eagles seem like they're a little more complete, but uh, I don't think the Eagles have an advantage at quarterback in this game at all. Um, and you know, and then I look at—I think back to Christmas Eve, and I look at what Dak Prescott did to an Eagles secondary that was supposed to be impenetrable, and Dallas dropped forty on them. Yeah. Now, if Dak did that to the Eagles' secondary, what do you think Mahomes is capable of doing? Yeah, yeah. Also, I, I, I started to think today that if this did turn into kind of a late, you know, uh, they're trading possessions and it's close and mm-hmm. uh, it's tight and it looks like it could be. I mean, the you it know, could. The, it could. The, everybody, everybody seems to think that. Um, then you, then your advantage is also having Andy Reid. I mean, he's the new Belichick, right? Mm-hmm. He's the He's yep. the he's the the best field general we have right now in the NFL. I and agree. so between him and Mahomes, if it came down to a close game, they're going to nothing against Nick Sirianni, but they're going to outcoach him. Yeah, and and what you say is exactly a close game. It can be a low-scoring game or it can be a high-scoring game. Yeah, Mahomes Mahomes is going he's going to find a way even if it's a field yeah. goal. And I'm still, you know, I mean, I've said most of this year, I'm not convinced that Jalen Hurts can throw a team from behind. He hasn't had to do it this year. Right. But this might be the day. All right, Don Cooper. uh, Both uh, Christian and I are going with Kansas City. Where are you? Uh, Cincinnati Bengals uh, 27, the 49ers uh, 21. (laughs) Really like that Kenny Anderson, huh? Um, Way to go. <laughs> okay, back back to reality there. <laughs> well, they say that Mahomes is, is the healthier of the two quarterbacks. So, and of course they got the coach. So I got to go with um yeah. I'm going to yeah, I'm going to have to go with uh uh the Chiefs. I guess a score I think it's well, going to be a, do, yeah, do I, we need I have a score? No, the score. Yeah. No, you don't need a score. No. No. I was cuz I'm I'm thinking it's going to be a a low score scoring game. Hmm. Cooper, if you were mm-hmm. cool, you would give us a score. Well, well 
When you say low scoring, mm-hmm. the, the, other than the the the, the Patriots, uh, what was it Patriots Rams a few years ago? Mm-hmm. It's pretty rare that the Super Bowl is a low scoring mm-hmm. game, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. But I, I'm, you know what? I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna predict it's gonna be a low scoring game, and we'll give the Chiefs 19 and give uh, okay. um, the Eagles uh, 10. 19 All right, 10. everybody's with uh, the okay. Kansas City Chiefs. Very yep. good. Thank you, gentlemen. Appreciate it. Um, 210-599-5555. We'll get you in here on KTSA. After 6, we're going to pay tribute to the great Burke, Bat- Burke Bacharach um, and uh, hear some of those incredible songs that are the soundtrack of our lives. Uh, we've been talking about, I'm getting, I'm getting a ton of emails about the Grammys. It, it, it seems like more people watch the Grammys than watch the State of the Union. That sounds crazy as I hear myself say it, but, um, a lot of, I, I, you know, probably they didn't watch them, but I guess everybody has seen that picture of Madonna. Nick says, it's not ageism, it's what she's done to her face. Fran Drescher looks normal. Just be your age, you're not fooling anyone. Yeah, I, I don't know a lot about Botox and having work done, and when people joke about it, I've often wondered, is that just, are we joking about the people that haven't done it right? Like, maybe people that do it right, we don't know, and they, we just think they look fantastic. But people who do it wrong have that kind of, you know, overinflated tire kind of look to the, you know, just, it, it actually looks uncomfortable. Like Madonna's face looks like it would be hard to wear that face, you know, hard to drink water or something. I don't know. You think about Madonna too, you think here's somebody that when she came along, right, her whole sort of theme was, I don't care what anybody thinks about me, I'm going to do my own thing, have my own appearance. She she was wearing stuff that, that they said, you can't do that. You can't dress like that. You can't act like that. And she didn't care. And I feel like now if you're 64 years old and you're pumping up your face, that looks like you do care what people think. Like I, I would think if you're going to keep brand consistency, Madonna, you would just age, you know? You just let it fly. And And maybe I feel this way as I'm getting older, but when a woman is aging naturally, there's something very graceful and, um, I don't know, kind of confident about that. Like that radiates a kind of confidence. I think women look great when they, when, you know, like when they just let their hair go steel gray or, uh, white or whatever. I, I don't, I don't think when you artificial, you know, when Nancy Pelosi has like Jennifer Aniston hair, on an 80 year old head. That's just, I, that, that doesn't work for me. But I mean, who am I to, you know, what do I know? 210 599 5555. Um, and then there were people writing and saying, well, no, you don't understand. Madonna wanted to look shocking and, um, be a spectacle because this is what she's, you know, how she's promoting herself and she's on tour and, you know, uh, she's doing something completely different. Fran Drescher is just being, you know, retired actress Fran Drescher, but Madonna is still out there uh, trying to sell tickets. So I don't know. Um, I I just I, I I'm tired of people playing the misogyny card when they have gone out of their way. When, when, in other words, if you cannot help but look, then that's not misogyny. That's a spectacle. Misogyny to me is when a woman is minding her own business, you know, whether she's working out, whether she's in the workplace, whatever, 
when you're minding your own business, you're just trying to get through your day, and some idiot is, hey, can I? You need a spotter, you know that that that's misogyny. But when you are um, just a spectacle, <laughs> when you are making a spectacle of yourself, then then you're like, don't look at me. I, I don't think you can have it that way. The Nord Stream pipeline blast was the CIA, according to investigative journalist Seymour Hirsch. I bring this up because I've followed Seymour Hirsch for a long time. He has won the Pulitzer Prize. He's written for the New York Times and the New Yorker. Seymour Hirsch is a guy who gets stories no one else gets. I don't know if this is right or not, but he's no, he, he, you know, he's no, he's no scrub. This isn't some guy that just wandered in off the street or started a podcast 10 minutes ago. He, he has earned his chops. He started investigating what really happened to the Nord Stream pipelines. Remember that there was a series of underwater blasts and that those blasts happened after the Biden administration said that the Nord Stream 2 pipeline would, quote, unquote, not go forward. So there's this woman at the State Department named Victoria Newland. And she had said, if Russia invades Ukraine one way or another, Nord Stream 2 will not move forward. And um, President Biden had said in a meeting a few weeks earlier in the White House with the German Chancellor, the new Chancellor of Germany, had come to visit President Biden. If Russia invades, there will be no longer a Nord Stream 2. We will bring an end to it. Seymour Hirsch said... Well, that doesn't prove we blew it up, but that sounds like we were planning to. He says he now believes the United States blew it up as part of a covert operation under the guise of a NATO exercise. And that the planning had been in the works back in 2021. Of course, Russia didn't invade Ukraine until 2022. Navy proposed using a newly commissioned submarine to assault the pipeline directly. The Air Force discussed dropping bombs with delayed fuses that could be set off remotely. The CIA argued that whatever was done, it would have to be covert. He writes in a piece entitled, How America Took Out the Nord Stream Pipeline. Throughout all of this scheming, Some working guys in the CIA and the State Department were saying, don't do this, it's stupid, and it will be a political nightmare if it comes out. Nevertheless, in early 2022, the CIA working group reported back to Jake Sullivan, we have a way to blow up the pipeline. And that's when they started talking about there will be no pipeline, we will bring an end to it. As for Washington motives in such a risky covert sabotage mission, Hirsch writes, quote, As long as Europe remained dependent on the pipelines for cheap natural gas, Washington was afraid that countries like Germany would be reluctant to supply Ukraine with the money and weapons it would need to defeat Russia. So, did it just blow up? Or did we talk a good game, and then make it happen. The reason I bring this up is not because I, you know, I don't know, (laughs) but two things. 
First, if it was a coincidence, it was the most amazing coincidence you and I have ever seen. Two, whenever you think of Seymour Hirsch, I mean, maybe you think, well, this guy's lost a few miles off his fastball. Maybe he was great at one time. I don't know about this. But whatever you think, why is he the only one digging and making these assertions? Why why isn't somebody... Why, why aren't several prominent news organizations all over this? See, this is what this is where we're at. It's not media bias that you have to worry about. Because media bias is like a game whose rules you can learn, you know? Okay, I get how it works. I I I understand the code, you know. The thing that really worries me is not media bias. The thing that really worries me is when the media smother a topic, a story, or a figure. And just disappear it or disappear them. The, the silence is deafening. I mean, we talked about this the other day. How could no one, none of their competitors, have been curious about what really happened inside of NBC News when the guy did the Pelosi story and then got taken off the air and the story got scrubbed from all their platforms and... The guy was kept off the air for several weeks, an award-winning journalist. He breaks the most, uh, you know, sensational account to that point of what had happened in the Pelosi uh, mansion, and they disappear him. I mean, they do that, but then the other competing networks that never miss a chance to make the other guys look bad or show them up or want to... None of them think this is a story. And this is, to me, where they're losing audience and losing ground. It's not the media bias part. It's that on any given day, you know the problem isn't what they're telling you. The problem is what they're not telling you. 210-599-5555. Um... I heard that there's a movie um, coming out called Cocaine Bear. Have you heard this? Have you heard of them? I'm not making this up. Or as the president would say, no joke. Cocaine Bear, uh, the trailer is already out and it's gone viral. Today it's in the news because there's apparently a scene in the movie where two 12-year-olds do coke. And people are saying uh, they ought to be at least, you know, 14 or 15 to do coke. What have we come to? Uh, but seriously, um, there's this whole debate about why that was key to the story. The, the movie is about a bear who, in the woods, make your own joke at home. I'll wait. This bear in the woods comes across like 500 pounds of cocaine that had been smuggled in from South America and dropped from a plane like in the Ozarks or something. And the bear finds the cocaine and gets into the cocaine. I'm picturing like Yogi Bear, all like uh, hyper. You know? Hey, boo-boo. 
Um, and it's based on a real story, apparently. Apparently, 35 years ago, there was a bear found dead next to some empty sacks and bags all torn up. And when they did a autopsy on the bear, the bear had had a massive cerebral hemorrhage from overdosing on cocaine. The bear was, the bear's blood was loaded with cocaine. They theorized that these were bags of cocaine. The bear overdosed. And, and so I'm, I'm amazed that's a true story, by the way. I, <laughs> that's kind of mind blowing. But anyway, so they've made a movie about it. And there's controversy about the movie. First of all, does, does this sound appealing? Is it just me? Am I, am I, am I getting too hard to please? I, I can't quite figure out what kind of mood I'd have to be in to see the cocaine bear. You know, I'm like, sometimes I'm in like an adventure, you know, thrill, thriller kind of movie mood. Sometimes I'm in like a comedy movie mood. Sometimes I'm in a horror movie. Let's, let's have a really good horror movie. The cocaine bear, I'm not, I'm not sure what category that falls into for me. I'm not sure how that's a date. Cocaine bear. And also, um, I'm surprised that the controversy is about the kids taking cocaine because Hollywood doesn't give a damn about kids, but Hollywood's all about cruelty to animals. I'm kind of shocked. I know it's CGI. There's no real bear. No bears are harmed in the making of the movie. But I'm kind of shocked they would make a movie in which a bear just, you know, uh, basically kills himself with cocaine. It seems very um, antithetical to the way Hollywood likes to portray animals and the environment and all that. So I guess they're always keeping us on our toes. You never know what they'll do next. Madonna's face, cocaine bear. Who knows what they'll have tomorrow. We're going to talk about uh, the great Burt Bacharach coming up after 6 here on 550 and 1071 KTSA, one of the greatest composers, creators of music ever uh, in American history. Uh, passed away at the age of 94 in Los Angeles. We'll hear some of those songs and some of the stories behind the hits coming up. Um, they asked uh, Governor Ron DeSantis the other day about the criticism he's taking, the incoming that he's taking from former President Donald Trump. Here's what he had to say about that, cut number one. I've asked you uh, a number of times in the past couple of days uh, on a number of different issues, other than being COVID in the state. Uh, I just... Well, look, what I would just say is this. Um, I roll out of bed. I have people attacking me from all angles. It's been happening for many, many years. And if you look at the good thing about it, though, is like if you take a crisis situation like COVID, you know, the good thing about it is when you're an elected executive, you have to make all kinds of decisions. You've got to steer that ship. And the good thing is, is that the people are able to render a judgment on that, whether they reelect you or not. And I'm happy to say, you know, in my case, not only did we win reelection, we won with the highest percentage of the vote that any Republican governor candidate has in the history of the state of Florida. We won by the largest raw vote margin, over 1.5 million votes, than any uh, governor candidate has ever had in Florida history. And in fact, we almost doubled the previous record, which I think was like 780,000 vote margin. And so 
what I would just say is uh, that verdict has been rendered by the people of the state of Florida. Okay. Um, so what is going on with the Trump attack on DeSantis? Well, obviously, it doesn't take a genius to figure out that uh, Trump's running and DeSantis is probably going to run. And DeSantis is the most serious, most high name recognition, uh, seems to be the most admired opponent or alternative to Donald Trump. But you know what I think is even more interesting than Trump attacking DeSantis is all of these other people that are saying they're going to run for president, like Nikki Haley is going to run for president. Mike Pompeo hasn't said yet, but it looks like he's going to run for president. John Bolton wants to run for president. Of course, Mike Pence, and there's uh, a story floating around this afternoon that Mike Pence is getting a subpoena from the special counsel, but Mike Pence wants to run. Now, all of these other people have no chance of winning this thing, especially if Trump's in it. But maybe that's the point. Because all of the people I just named, Pence, Haley, Pompeo, Bolton, a few other governors, they will all take votes away from DeSantis, not from Trump. Trump's vote is like a sealed unit. People are with him. They've been with him. You hear it when they call. You know, it's it's a very high level of loyalty. Nothing bothers them. They're not suddenly un- unraveled by something he said or tweeted. That, if that was going to happen, that would have already happened. Th- those folks that were going to be disappointed in Donald Trump already have been. They've already moved on. So the people left, they can take anything. I'm wondering if there's a method to the madness here. When I look at several people, they're not dummies and they're certainly not inexperienced. Everybody I just named has run for office, held office, been on the national stage. I I get the feeling that all of that comes out of DeSantis, and maybe that's the reason they're in the race. Is Nikki Haley in the race? Not to win it, but to take votes away from DeSantis. I mean, I'm not saying she's not ambitious. And I'm not saying she won't raise a lot of money. She will. And I'm not saying that she may not, she, this may be just her debut. She may be planning to run again four years after that and four years after that. But it, it is interesting that just about every other name you mention is somebody that has to divide the same pie that Ron DeSantis has to divide. And then Trump's over here with his own pie. And it's kind of an unusual dynamic. Most primary fields are zero-sum games. You know, for every vote you gain, I lose, we all lose, somebody. But he doesn't lose. The more people that get into this thing, the better it is for Trump. I mean, the, the worst race he could be in would be just him and DeSantis. There actually are polls where DeSantis is pretty even with him or even a little ahead of him. I don't know if that's true, but, I mean, I could imagine it might be. But give me a 10-person field, and that's a lot of divvying up 
of the not Trump vote. And I don't mean never Trump vote. I mean just people that are, you know, okay, I voted for him before, but not now, or I, he lost me when he did this or didn't do that. DeSantis has to run against everybody. And Trump only has to run against DeSantis. On the JR poll asking about the Super Bowl, uh, will you watch Super Bowl 52, 57? Call it 52. Um, yes. Just the ads. No, I don't think people are really into the ads anymore. It's kind of funny to think that we ever were. Uh, Carl says, Jack at KTSA.com, I think some primary candidates run to get experience and build a base toward the road, uh, aspirations of actually win, t- t- down the road versus aspirations of actually winning. Yeah, no, that's, that's, that's absolutely right, Carl. I mean, they're, they raise their name recognition. They raise money. They can write a book. Uh, they can, pave the path for another run later, although, although, that's a little tricky now because the new hotness in politics is fresh face, outsider, so you, you're probably not going to be able to do it the way like Biden did it, where your calling card is, hey man, I've been here forever. I, I, I think that's, that's actually a, a net negative now. I mean, obviously he got in, but, Going forward, you don't want to be a guy or a gal that's run for president two or three times, is what I'm saying. But, yeah, I mean, this, the, the, what part of the reason these people are in this are those reasons you cited, Carl. But I also think it's very interesting that you've got all of these Trump-aligned people, Pence, Haley, Pompeo, they still like the guy, right? And they served with him. They were on Team Trump. But now their presence in the race doesn't do any harm to him. He actually, Trump actually welcomed Nikki Haley into the race. He, he tweeted out that it was, she was welcome to, to run. The only, the only opponent he's consistently hard on, very, is the one he calls Ron DeSantimonious. And I'm kind of thinking maybe the others are, whether it's, their only reason, or just one of them, they're helping the boss. Because every vote they get, it might only be 1% or 2%. It probably only will be. But that comes out of DeSantis. So like I said earlier, I'm not a video game guy, but there's a new Harry Potter-themed game called Hogwarts Legacy. And... um it's very highly anticipated. I think it came out today or tomorrow. Um, and it's getting rave reviews, and you know how popular the whole J.K. Rowling, Harry Potter franchise is, right? Okay, so this is a Harry Potter-themed video game. Um, but, and the, and the pre-orders are incredible. Uh, but there is a website that is tracking and outing anyone who, uh, any Twitch users, that's uh, a way that people play games online, any Twitch users that stream the Hogwarts Legacy game. So it's a cancellation tool. If you dare to play the game that is tied to J.K. Rowling, who's being accused of being a transphobe, you'll be canceled. 
They're warning people. If you stream this game, if you play this game, this website is tracking you, you can say goodbye to your career. It's an LGBTQ activist website. It's uh, The actual uh, website is havetheystreamedthatwizardgame.com. And they're going to put you on there so that other people who know you can boycott you. Your, if your employer is woke, they can call you on the carpet, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. See, I think we need this is the this is the battle we need. You know, like when you read the history of a war, toward the end of a war, you have the worst battles. You know, the the Battle of the Bulge in World War II, just just a meat grinder, just the worst of the worst. But it's because it's it's you know back against the wall. This is it, final push. I feel like we're getting to that point in the cancel culture war or the woke war. But th- these are the battles you've got to have, and some people will give in, and some people will say nuts like that general did. So some people are saying already, I'll take two copies of Hogwarts Legacy now. I, I, but I think this is what we have to do. Maybe you're not a gamer, but in whatever realm they come for you, your choice will be, oh, oh, oh okay, I, you know, I don't want any trouble. Maybe they'll leave me alone if I just, you know, give in, post the right filter on my, you know, Facebook profile photo, put the Ukrainian flag on there, or the rainbow flag on there, maybe they'll leave me alone, you know. And there are people who are saying, you know, I'm just going to play the game. 210-599-5555. You know, we used to write books. We used to write books. We used to name things. Even sometimes have statues of people who stood up in an unpopular and lonely stand simply because they knew they were right and they didn't need or care for the affirmation of others. We used to write books about him. We used to put them on pedestals. And, and you know who really did a lot of that was the left. They were very big on that. They were very big on, you know, they, they, you know the, the, the left iconized the heroes of the civil rights movement. You know, they, they, were, they were very enamored of what Rosa Parks did. But what Rosa Parks did is now what Catholics are doing, what pro-life people are doing, what people that just want to read a J.K. Rowling book are doing. They're just doing what they believe is right. They are making their own choices. They are refusing to bow to the mob. They are willing to take, and they know they will take, whatever comes from that. And I, I think we need to have these battles. And, and people need to know this is going on. They need, you know, this is why we talk about it. I mean, at, at the end of the day, um, you have to stand up for what you believe in. And it's really important that we notice you're doing it. Because your courage is infectious. And somebody else who was on the fence sees you and they go, well, you know what? Yeah, I'm not, I, I'm with him. I'm not, uh, I'm not taking any more of this.
and uh, and that and and th- and th- part of this is what we talked about at the beginning of the show. This pearl clutching over the State of the Union, uh, the Republicans of the State of the Union. Say what you want, and I and I understand reasonable people can can have different opinions or analyses of what happened, but but again, at its root, a bunch of people were being lied to and insulted to their face, and acted in the moment. I think authentically. That's how it looked to me. So we were talking about the uh, Chinese balloon story earlier. And they're saying now, as they're recovering some of the wreckage off uh, South Carolina, Mm -hmm. uh, that the pieces they've picked up have um, English writing and Western-made components. In other words, the Chinese spy balloon might be the first thing ever to come from China that was not made in China. I was going to say, you took the words right out of my mouth. That is that is bizarre. That really is. I wonder if it's true. You think it's true? I don't know. Let, let's just run with it for a minute. So they make everything, right? Yep. Except spy balloons? <laughs> if we found the one... Now, now, earlier there were senators uh, huffing and puffing earlier this week. Well, any country that helped them with this, we're going to impose sanctions. It would be funny if that turns out to be us. <laughs> Wouldn't that be ironic? <laughs> yeah, and I, 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 I do try. I, I do believe the politicians would would they would be merciless. They would level sanctions on the American people in a heartbeat. I mean, if mm-hmm. that's if if we need to be taught a lesson, uh, these politicians are the ones to teach us. So uh, brace yourself. Well, could the joke be on? Maybe we're spying on ourselves. Mm, yeah, you know, you know, maybe that's it. They're really not that. They're really not that interested in us. We're, we're just <laughs> spying on ourselves. Like we already know what you're doing. We've got TikTok. We don't need a balloon. All right, five fifty and one zero seven one KTSa. His name was Bert Freeman Backrack, and he was born on May twelfth, nineteen twenty eight. He died last night in Los Angeles. An American composer, songwriter. Producer, pianist, vocalist, composed literally hundreds of songs sung by over a thousand different artists and groups over the decades from the late 1950s into the 1990s. Many of his uh, collaborations were with another famous uh, artist, lyricist, Hal David. Six Grammy wins, three Academy Award wins, uh, Burt Bacharach, influenced by his background in jazz and uh, sort of an unusual, I guess you could say, approach uh, to music and to what he wanted, how he wanted music to, um, to sound. He said in an interview uh, some years ago that his goal was to make music sound a little different. I want to read you the quote. This was an interview he did five or six years ago. He said, I didn't want to make songs the same way they'd been done, so I split vocals and instrumentals to try to make it interesting. It's about the peaks and valleys of where a song can take you. You can tell a story and be able to be explosive one minute and then get quiet as a kind of satisfying revolution. His um, work was performed by an incredibly wide variety of artists, 
Marty Robbins, Perry Como, Jerry Butler, Dusty Springfield, Jackie DeShannon, Tom Jones, Herb Alpert, B.J. Thomas, the Carpenters, and most often, most prolifically, uh, the great singer Dionne Warwick. And then in later years, some of his older songs were newly appropriated on the soundtracks of major movies. In fact, just last year, uh, there was a Burt Backrack song in a Volkswagen television commercial. In 2015, Rolling Stone ranked Burt Backrack and Hal David at number 32 in their list of the 100 greatest songwriters of all time. They met in 1957. They started formally writing together a few years later. And one of their first breaks was when the great R&B singer Jerry Butler asked to record a song called Make It Easy on Yourself and wanted Burt Backrack to direct the recording session as well. It was the first time that Backrack who until this point had been writing music, was involved in the entire recording process. But he would then do that many, many, many times over the uh, years and decades to come. Over about a 20-year stretch, Dionne Warwick's recordings of his songs sold something like 16 million copies, had 38 songs on the chart, 22 in the top 40. Songs everybody knows, like Walk On By, Alfie, I Say A Little Prayer, do You Know the Way to San Jose? Uh, his songs were even covered by non-pop artists. Stan Getz, the jazz great, and Wes Montgomery were known to do Burt Backrack and Hal David uh, compositions. Uh, he worked, as I mentioned, on movie soundtracks like the James Bond uh, spoof Casino Royale in 1967. He worked on Broadway uh, with a musical in 1968 called Promises, Promises. And, of course, along the way, picking up every kind of award and accolade. And I think maybe the ultimate tribute to Burt Backrack is that his older songs keep getting re-recorded, keep getting covered uh, by more recent artists and even current uh, artists. Um, Burt Backrack had a number one hit in this country and in many other countries around the world. Uh, from the soundtrack to the movie Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. It's a song everyone's heard. Raindrops keep falling on my head. Raindrops are falling on my head. And just like the guy's feet are too big for his bed. Nothing seems to fit. Those raindrops are falling on my head. They keep falling. This song won an Oscar for Best Original Song and... He also won Best Original Score. B.J. Thomas, the singer here, singing this song with laryngitis. It took several takes, none of which Backrack was happy with before they got the finished product. If you know B.J. Thomas's voice, he does sound huskier on this song than on many of his other uh, hits. This is also a song that got turned down by many other artists. It was given to Ray Stevens, Chris Christopherson, Bob Dylan. Uh, all said no to it before they got it. Uh, in the uh, hands, the very capable hands of B.J. Thomas. Another song that Backrack and Hal David put together around that same time was for their 1968 musical, Promises, Promises. It's a song called I'll Never Fall in Love Again. What do you get when you fall in love? A guy with a pinch of thirst,
Music with a top five hit in 1969 with I'll Never Fall Again. A lot of other singers recorded it. It's a funny story behind this song. They were um, previewing the Broadway show, Promises, Promises, in Boston. And uh, Backrack and famed Broadway producer David Merrick felt that the the uh, show was missing a song. There was a place in the middle of the second act uh, where they needed one more song. Merrick told Backrack, I want a song that people will whistle on their way out of the theater. But at the time, Backrack was in the hospital with pneumonia. He was so sick he couldn't even sit upright at the piano to write the music. So Hal David came up with lyrics inspired by Burt Backrack's illness. That's where the line... What do you get when you kiss a guy or girl? You get enough germs to catch pneumonia. Came from. As soon as he was able to, Backrack got back at the desk. He says, I wrote the melody for I'll Never Fall in Love faster than I ever did for any other song in my life. And it became another memorable composition by the two of them. Now, the name of that, um, as you know, the name of that play was Promises, Promises. And that play inspired, 20 years later, a British band called Naked Eyes. They decided they wanted to cover an old Burt Backrack song, and they did. You've heard it. There's always something there to remind me by Naked Eyes. And every step I take reminds me of just how we used to be. What's interesting about this uh, recording is that Naked Eyes was just getting started and they recorded this as a demo to try to get a record contract. Uh, they were trying to get signed by EMI Records in 1982 and on the strength of this demo of this song, they were offered their first big contract. They were invited to go into Abbey Road Studios, famous Abbey Road Studios, and recorded the vocal you're hearing right now in one Take, first take, always something there to remind me by Naked Eyes. A lot of Burt Backrack songs have this story behind them. A lot of different people did them. There's a lot of different versions. A lot of times Dionne Warwick is the first person to sing it. That was true with the one we just played. And it's true with this one we're about to play as well. She recorded it in 1964. It was a minor hit for her, but it was a bigger hit in 1973 for the band The Stylistics. You see this guy, this guy's in love with you. Continuing our tribute to the late, great songwriter Burt Backrack, 
with this song written by Burt Backrack and Hal David and recorded by Herb Alpert. Now, Herb Alpert was primarily known for his trumpet playing, the leader of the Tijuana Brass, right? But he did sing from time to time, and he sang this song uh, with an arrangement by Burt uh, that became a huge hit uh, in 1968. So the, the back story is Herb Alpert's going to do a television special. And he decides he wants to sing a song of, you know, vocals as part of this special, just to be different. He visits Burt Backrack's office and he says, Burt, do you have any old compositions lying around that you've never used that you don't need that I might be able to take? Alpert said he used to do this all the time when he would visit songwriters because once in a while there'd be a lost gem or a hidden pearl. And Herb, uh, Herb Alpert tells the story. He says, Burt Backrack went to a file cabinet, opened it up, said, here, you might like this one. And he did, because it was an easy song for Alpert to sing within his vocal range. He sang it on a 1968 television special called The Beat of the Brass. The network got so many calls, where can I get that song, that they decided to issue it as a single. It was the first single on Herb's brand-new record label called A&M Records, and it became the first number one single for A&M and the first number one single for Backrack and David. Continuing now to remember music that he gave us and left us behind, uh, this is a very early one from Burt Backrack. It's Baby, It's You. It's not the way you smile that touch my heart. It's not the way you kiss that tears me apart. Whoa, many, many nights roll by. I sit alone at home and cry over you. What can I do? Mm. I can't help myself. Cause baby, it's you. I love this woman. What a voice. That's Shirley Reeves, the lead singer of the Shirelles. She's still on tour. She still tours with a modern-day version of the Shirelles. She's in her 80s, I think. But, uh, yeah, big hit for them. And the Beatles also did a different arrangement of this song, Baby, It's You. Backrack's magic, working for all different kinds of bands and artists. And here's another one that he wrote with Hal David and was originally made a hit by the English pop singer Dusty Springfield. This song was featured in the 1967 comedy James Bond movie Casino Royale. It's The Look of Love. The look of love is in your eyes A look your smile the background on this song is that it was originally going to be an instrumental. Um, and Backrack wrote it as an instrumental. But Hal David came up with some lyrics... And they decided it was better with words. And by the way, I think it is. The melody, according to Backrack, was inspired by watching one of the scenes of the movie with the very sexy Ursula Andress. So that 
bossa nova rhythm and the way Ursula Andres moved. We remember that, right? Gives us the look of love. One of the great R&B singers that's unfortunately uh, largely forgotten today, and I believe this gentleman is also still alive, but really, really a tremendous voice and a tremendous talent, never quite broke through in a big way, was a singer named Chuck Jackson. Uh, he has been performing for decades. Hits like I Keep Forgetting, I Don't Want to Cry. And this one, uh, from the magic of Burt Backrack's pen, Any Day Now. Any day now. I will hear you say goodbye, my love. And you'll be on your way. I mentioned earlier that uh, this song was in a Volkswagen television commercial that ran in 2021 and 2022. A beautiful recording of the song Any Day Now. Fast forward several years, and country music singer Ronnie Millsap decides he wants to do a cover of Any Day Now. At first, he sang it just like Chuck Jackson. And that might have been fine, but his producer at the time encouraged him to make the song sound different. And Millsap decided to do it in a different key and sing it more softly. It became a huge 1982 hit for Ronnie Millsap. Here's his version of Burt Backrack's Any Day Now. Any Day Now. hear you say goodbye my love and you'll be on your way then my wild beautiful bird you will have flown any day now I'll be all There's San Antonio's own Christopher Cross with a number one hit from 1981 from the movie Arthur starring Dudley Moore and Liza Minnelli, Arthur's theme, Best That You Can Do. Uh, Co-written by not only um, Burt Backrack, but also Christopher Cross, Burt's then-wife, Carol Bayer Sager, who was a fantastic uh, songwriter and singer in her own right, and... A writing credit also went to Liza Minnelli's ex-husband, uh, Australian singer-songwriter Peter Allen, who used to work with uh, Bear Sager and Burt Backrack a lot. I had a chance to interview Liza Minnelli um, in the late 1980s, asked her about this song. What does the line, when you get caught between the moon and New York City, mean? She said that her then-husband Peter Allen came up with that line, while his plane was in a holding pattern during a nighttime arrival at JFK in New York City. When you get caught between the moon 
and New York City. I thought it was going to be deeper than that, but it was just a plane waiting to land. We're listening to and remembering the great compositions and creations, I guess you could say, of the late Burt Bacharach uh, when he passed away yesterday in Los Angeles at the age of 94. He left behind hundreds of songs covered by over a 1,000 different artists and bands. Uh, This next one is undoubtedly one of the most immediately recognizable songs of his and of the artist who had the big hit with it, Dionne Warwick and Walk On By. If you see me walking down the street and I start to cry each time we meet, walk on The song was released in the early spring of 1964, eventually made it to number six on the Billboard Hot 100 and number one on the R&B charts. And according to Rolling Stone's list of the top 500 greatest songs of all time, they put it at number 51, which means it's the second highest song by a solo female on the list. Only Respect by Aretha Franklin ranks higher than Walk On By by Dionne Warwick. And what a lot of people don't know is it's a sad-sounding song, but it was recorded during a very sad time. She went into the Bell Sound Studios in New York City in the days following the JFK assassination in late 1963 to lay down that track. Another one that everybody remembers and associates with Dionne Warwick is a song that she has admitted in recent years she never really liked. But like so many of her hits, it was written by Burt Backrack and Hal David's lyrics, and it's Do You Know the Way to San Jose. Now, I mentioned that Bell Sound Studios setting. That's where Dion had most of her big hits in the 1960s. This was the last song she would ever record there uh, in 1968. And when they recorded it, uh, a very famous sound engineer came up with an ingenious idea for the way it sounds at the beginning. The famous introduction to this sound, to this uh, song was created by uh, actually using masking tape and attaching a microphone to the head of the bass drum that the drummer is playing. Next time you listen to this song, you'll hear that. Uh, Dionne Warwick said in a 1983 interview with Ebony Magazine, she did not like Do You Know the Way to San Jose. She had to be convinced to record it. She told the magazine, it's a dumb song, and I really didn't want to sing it. But it was a hit, and people still want to hear it. The next one we're going to play became a hit by accident even though it is one of the most recognizable songs by one of the all-time most recognizable singers, it's I Say a Little Prayer by Aretha Franklin.
All right, so as you know, Dionne Warwick also had a hit with this song, and it was a big success for her, top five, uh, I think number one on the R&B chart. And um, about a year later, Aretha Franklin is in the studio uh, with Burt Backrack working on an album called Aretha Now, and she and her background singers are kind of fooling around. They're just casually singing some songs they've been hearing lately. And the producers hear Aretha Franklin just casually riffing with I Say a Little Prayer. And they're like, we got to have that. In fact, the head of Atlantic Records, Jerry Wexler, says that you've got to do that. They get the, everybody back in the booth. They get all the musicians lined up. And one take. Next time you hear this song, consider this. One take leads to that version of I Say a Little Prayer by Aretha Franklin. And for my money, that's an even better version than the very pretty Dionne Warwick version of I Say a Little Prayer. Now, of course, over the years, um, artists would come and go in and out of the, I guess you'd say, the orbit of Burt Backrack. But certain people like Dionne Warwick never went very far or stayed gone for very long. And that's why she was able to get other people in on this next project. Now, this is not an original song for her. It's a cover of a, of a song that uh, Burt first gave to Rod Stewart a few years earlier. But when Dionne Warwick, Elton John, Gladys Knight, and Stevie Wonder came together to sing this song, it became a number one hit, and in fact, the number one song of 1986. The purpose was to raise money for AIDS research, and it did. Millions. That's what friends are for with, again, the amazing talents of Dionne Warwick, Elton John, Gladys Knight, and Stevie Wonder. Elton's also playing keyboard, and Stevie's blowing that harmonica. Listening to a uh, Burt Backrack and Carol Bayer Sager creation on my own, which became a big hit for the two of them in 1986. It's about a relationship where the two people are going their separate ways. And what's funny about that is this is a duet, but they did not sing it together. They recorded it in different studios at different times, far apart, and were brought together only electronically to sing this duet. But boy, they both sound so good. On my own. Before we get to one more, quick results on the JR poll. Our question tonight was, will you watch Super Bowl 57? 52% said yes, 46% said no, and 2% said they would watch for the ads. Well, I'm going to leave you tonight with another Burt Backrack song. We're going to go back to his body of work with Hal David, with whom he had his greatest number of not only songs, but hit songs. Um... And this was a uh, song that came out in 1970 and was on the second studio album for a band that would become 
huge. They had already started to emerge, but this would be by far their biggest breakthrough song. It's a song that was first recorded by actor Richard Chamberlain several years earlier, but was not a hit for him. Backrack and David gave this song to Herb Alpert. He, in turn, gave it to the newest act on his record label, A&M. And that act achieved their biggest chart success to date, a number one hit, not only in this country, but in many countries all around the world. And for me personally, this is my favorite song that Burt Backrack ever had anything to do with. It's also my favorite song by the Carpenters, and this is the Carpenters, and they long to be close to you. Thank you, Burt Backrack. Why do birds suddenly appear every time you are near? Just like me, they long to be close to you. Why do stars fall down from the sky every time?